Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday february 15th 2013 this week episode 274 comes to you from our studio d in central city pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes and joining me in the studio is our engineer roxy v val bender hi everyone All right, calling in from the old Studio C in lovely McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, Joe. Hey, Val. Hey, guest. How are everybody? Good day, Cliff. Uh, of course, we'll also be joined by uh, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for our roundup. We also have John Lapoter is going to join us for the roundup, and I think Glenn Feldman is going to be here. Yeah, I see Glenn. He's going to be here for the halftime. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with Mr. Larry Robertson. This is, you know, we had Larry on two years ago, Cliff, believe it or not. I, I was looking. I'm like, it had to have been about a year ago. Nope, two years ago. Larry Robertson was the first Indoor Air Quality Association president. He has his own consulting group in Texas. He also is a current board member with the IAQA, and he's helping get ready for the upcoming annual convention in Orlando. That'll be the 27th of February through March 1st. We'll also have our halftime with the What's News with Glenn Feldman. We'll go back to our interview on post-remediation verification on mold projects, and then, of course, we'll go to the roundup. I think we'll have a great, lively roundup today. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, to listen to the show, just follow the link that says go to the show on your invitation or go to iaqradio.com and go to the show link at the top of the page. You can also get our shows from our homepage, streaming, or you can download them at the Go to Show button or from iTunes. We also have certification maintenance points and continuing education credits for the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, the IICRC, 
and the ACAC, just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thank you, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submit your answers easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. To Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental Services, Dayton, Ohio, for being first to answer last week's trivia question, naming Offenhauser as the American automotive engine design that dominated American open wheel racing, winning the Indianapolis 500 race 27 times. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, February 15, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their website at www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the two world leaders and the subject of the historic treaty signed in December 1987, we have an audio clue. The importance of this treaty transcends numbers. We have listened to the wisdom of, in an old Russian maxim. Though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is dovayai no provayai. Trust but verify. <laughs> Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Larry Robertson was the Indoor Air Quality Association's first president and a founding board member and has been a leader in indoor air quality research and services for over two decades. He is known for establishing Mycotech Biological, one of the first environmental laboratories that specialized in identification of fungi and their association with HVAC systems. He also contributed in the initial development of the Certified Indoor Environmentalist and Certified Microbial Remediation programs at their inception back in the early days with the Indoor Air Quality Association. And he served on the Texas Mold Task Force relative to the development of mold regulations in the state of Texas. He was also co-founder of Indoor Environmental Consultants, Home Diagnostics, Puricis One, Puricis Two, Laro, and Microfungi, Inc., and the Aeromycological Society of America. He has divested from all these entities and formed the Robertson Environmental Consulting Group to provide consulting and indoor environmental services through a network of consultants and remediators across the country. We invited Larry on to talk about his upcoming presentation at the IAQA convention on post-remediation verification. We have a little uh, music for Larry. All right, Larry, do we have you? 
<laughs> yes, you do. Welcome back. I, I was in shock when I looked at the date when you were here last time. It was almost, Unbelievable. Uh, I thought it was just last year, too. I, almost, I, almost exactly two years ago, Larry. But anyway, tell us a little bit about what what you're doing at the conference and I guess maybe a little why, you know, this post-remediation verification issue. Well, uh, just uh, a quick plug on the conference. Uh, there is a, I think we have probably one of the best conferences uh, that we've got planned. Uh, Elliot Horner has just done a wonderful job of getting speakers there. Uh, I've got a couple of topics I'm going to be talking about uh, at that conference, one of them being this one about uh, post-remedial verification or PRV. The basic purpose of that presentation uh, is really to try and stimulate a movement in our organization and in our industry to come together and develop some standardized approach for mold PRV or what's sometimes called clearance. As, you, as, as most of the listeners know, we have a myriad of documents available in the industry that guide mold consultants and contractors in assessment and remediation, remediation practices. However, none of these documents really address the final act in the entire process, that being PRV. Most of the documents essentially punt when it comes to the specifics of PRV and incorporate languages like using professional opinion or professional judgment or the recommendations of consultants to, tangle these, uh, to tackle these issues. The result of this has, over all this, I say two, two decades, has been the development of numerous self-generated PRV criteria, many of which are, in my opinion, outrageous and in some cases unobtainable. I, and I need to add that this is despite the presence of PRV recommendations that have been published with some actually representing de facto regulations as a result of being specifically used by regulated health agencies. But these sources remain largely ignored and consultants today, to, to the most part, simply make up their own criteria on a case-by-case -case basis. I personally feel, Joe, that this is damaging the credibility of our industry, and that it is of paramount importance for the consultants and the remediators to come together to establish an accepted and uniform method of practice regarding PRV. You know, I... So essentially, the presentation at the IAQA conference is what I'm hoping to be the first step in that process. You know, I think a lot of people would agree, and especially... I work with a lot of contractors in the mold remediation field, and they are so frustrated with exactly what you described, Larry, the self-developed clearance criteria that they have to meet, and sometimes they're just not sure. I mean, I mean, these are guys that clean up moldy buildings. They're not typically guys that are, you know, have a background in industrial hygiene or have done a lot of... Uh, testing and consulting you know they go in they clean up water damage they clean it up nicely and then they oftentimes have not the best idea anyway of how they're being judged and it really makes it tough for the contractors so I, I just want to put in a plug for the contractors I work with they need this probably as bad as the industry in general and the public need it 
I absolutely agree. I think it's a, certainly a credibility issue for our industry at large. It is a problem for the remediators and remedial contractors on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and the consultants, I think we just need to provide the leadership and direction to kind of move out of the dark ages with this. Like, in the early days, I mean, when this all kind of began, there was essentially nothing in place. And then later, that emerged into simply doing visual inspections to see that the mold had been removed. However, as awareness and liability increased in our industry, the need for some more clear and definitive statements of project closure emerged. Typically, those were to do a visual inspection to make certain that all of the visible mold and damaged materials have been removed, and two, was to make certain that the surfaces that were in the work area were visibly free of dirt and accumulated debris, sort of like a white glove test, but maybe not quite as stringent as that. And those are the kinds of recommendations that were recommended in uh, the early New York City guidelines and the ACGIH bioaerosols document. But where they fell short had to do with any kind of air sampling. Where the process moved to was a step three that provided some kind of guidance that the concentrations of the mold spores in the containment systems have been returned to typical and normal levels or being equivalent in type and number to uh, outdoor levels. And then as the process uh, continually evolved later, making certain that the original cause of the water, uh, of cause of the event had been corrected if possible, and that the water levels of the materials that were that had been impacted had returned to typical and normal levels. Larry, let me go back to those early days because I I wasn't as involved as you were. I was doing asbestos and lead and um, safety, you know, construction safety training and, and working with hazardous waste, etc. I uh, first of all for you, what were the early days? What what years are we talking about? Well, uh, I mean, ACGIH had uh, specifics on doing indoor-outdoor comparisons uh, in the mid-'80s. So, uh, and I don't, I, that's really, in my opinion, about when the industry began to take take hold. Okay. And you started doing a lot of work in the industry, and, and it became, you know, we had the mold courses and the CMR, the early days, the indoor environmentalist. What year were we talking about there? Well, yeah, those aren't really the early days for me. I guess those those are more like they were developed in the 90s. In the, in the mid to late 90s, right? I believe that would be about As, right. When we were doing this type of work in the 80s, uh, there weren't a lot of people doing it. and we were We were plowing new ground at that point. Uh, but then, again, I think that it was primarily driven, number one at that time, by just the individuals who were doing the work for wanted some kind of clear, definitive statement on project closure. And then from that, liability began to uh, interface in with all of the work. 
And so that's really when it became more than just a visual observation. There had to be some kind of test involved. And eventually in the state of Texas, uh, it actually became a regulation where uh, the post-remedial testing had to, had to occur and had to involve some type of accepted national method. Now, back in those early days, I would assume you were doing a lot of culturable type sampling. I don't know that the spore traps were as uh, common and, and tape lift, but maybe I'm wrong. Were you doing tape lift as well? or? Uh, uh, I yes, I mean, actually, those those techniques are really common in mycological circles. Now, the, the spore trap method uh, that used the cassette was certainly something that developed later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in those early days, uh, heck, we were using what was called a Burkhardt impact sampler. Uh, uh, the Burkhardt company uh, essentially had the very first uh, spore trap uh, volumetric spore trap sampler uh, patented and developed. And essentially you would use a microscope slide. Now that, that whole process has evolved to using uh, these cassettes that have small microscopic slides in them that are they're utilized in lieu of the standard microscope slide. And as far as uh, culturable sampling, were you doing a lot of culturable sampling back in those days as well? Yes, doing both. Okay, okay. Now let's let's move fast forward up to the, I guess, the 99, I want to say, is when the addition of the bioaerosols I'm from more, more familiar with came out. And also when... In 2001, EPA came out with mold in schools and commercial buildings, and both of them had indoor-outdoor comparisons in them where you were looking at trying to get the levels within the containment similar to outdoors in the case of EPA, and I I don't remember the exact wording in the bioaerosols book. I could find it in a moment, but um, those were two of the documents. You mentioned some other, I don't know if you were referring to those or to other industry standards and guidelines. Can you mention a few of the others that have uh, have influenced what you do over the years? Well, yes. I mean, it's wise to look at all of these uh, guidelines and, and, and use them, have them in your bag of tricks, so to speak. But, uh, again, most of these documents walk right up to the concept of clearance, but they do not necessarily address the specifics of PRV. And one, for example, would be uh, the document that came out in uh, 2003, which was the the first uh, IICRC S520 standard. Mm -hmm. And uh, those that are familiar with that know that the IICRC uses uh, these terms, conditions one, two, and three. And essentially, uh, the, the goal of the mold remediation project is to return the environment to a condition one, which uh, essentially attempts to define what is typical and normal for an indoor environment. Now, the problem is that there are documents that, that are out there in the references and published literature that provide guidance on what is typical and normal However, no one seems to be paying much attention to them. Uh, Just to cite a few of them, in in 1996, there was an excellent paper that was put out by Rao, Burge, and Chang in the Journal of Air and Waste Management, 
in which there was a comprehensive review of quantitative standards and guidelines for fungi and indoor air. That's an excellent source. There's also was a study done by Shelton, Brian Shelton there at PathCon, Kirkland, Flanders, and Morris that did profiles of airborne fungi in buildings and in outdoor environments across the United States. That's a peer-reviewed publication in the Applied Environmental Microbiology. And another, another good example is that you can get laboratory pocket reference guides that provide outdoor levels and ranges of specific organisms on a state-by-state -state basis. For example, in Texas, if, if I look at this uh, document for Texas, it indicates that for outdoor air, stachybotrys levels are typical and common, that, that we, we find them at in low ranges of 7 spores per cubic meter, in a medium range of 13 spores per cubic meter, and they can also be high at about 130 spores per cubic meter, with a frequency of 19%. So almost almost one-fifth of the time they're occurring in outdoor air at those, at those concentrations, generally suggesting that people are routinely exposed to this, or exposed to this organism on a day-to-day -day basis, and yet many consultants fail a mold project based on the presence of a single spore of stachybotrys saying that that does not represent the condition one for IICRC. So in my opinion, the, the information is out there to rein in a lot of these extremes, but they are just being ignored in a large part. Can you give us, I know you've been doing a lot of research on the, oh, first of all, I apologize. Cliff, once again, I'm doing it. Um, Cliff, do you have a follow-up or a question you wanted to No, no, no. Mine are more catastrophic Okay. Okay. questions. So while, while we're at, while we're oh, just, go ahead, Larry. Before we go on, Joe, you mentioned on something uh, about the, the indoor-outdoor comparisons. Yes. And I'd really like to touch on that before we move off of that subject. Let's, let's do that now. Please do. Uh yeah, that question actually has, in my opinion, two important considerations. And first, let's just talk about the indoor-outdoor comparison. Uh, indoor -outdoor comparison. There's, there's a known history of where that comes from. I believe it originates uh, from the ACGIH and some early, early uh, publications on bioaerosols. And the rationale that they use is generally okay. It's, it's only when we start applying that to a specific project where the problems really start to emerge. Here's a, a standard example of that problem. I'm going to give you an example of a failed clearance test in which a spore, spore trap was done and 1,000 spores per cubic meter of a typical mix of fungi, common fungi, were in the containment area and the outdoor level was 500 spores per cubic meter. Well, the indoor was two times greater than the outdoors, and so the consultant would fail the project based on a strict indoor-outdoor comparison. An example of a pass clearance test would be if sampling was done and 1,000 spores per cubic meter of typical fungi were found in the indoors and 2,000 were found in the outdoors. Well, there the outdoors is twice that of the indoors, so the project passes. But the problem is, the indoor levels never changed. They were a thousand spores per cubic meter in both examples. So why is it that we're failing 
if 1,000 sports per cubic meter is good on one day, why isn't it good on another day? I think that goes into what's a lot of this stuff of what's driving these remediators crazy. Research has demonstrated that around 2,000 spores per cubic meter is a, of a typical mix of fungi is typical and common for an indoor environment. So why, why would we necessarily be failing anything below 2,000 uh, considering the fact that they were typical and normal kinds of things? Does not that represent a condition one? But what I see in the industry and what's being used are criteria that are much more stringent than that. And obviously there are cases where we need more stringent criteria, but for common and routine types of mold projects, I'm not sure we do. I want to use an outdoor sample for comparison if something is above what I consider to be typical and normal for an indoor environment and I'm looking for an outdoor influence that could put, have potentially biased that. The other criteria that I feel that's important is this use of spore traps. Uh, spore traps have been around a long time, and that methodology has its place. However, there has been some recent studies that has identified serious precision issues with regard to that particular method. I personally have become very hesitant about the reliability of that data in general. Several published studies exist on this, and I think we even talked about that about two years ago. I had a, a presentation on that at the last IAQ conference. But consultants continue to use this method, I think, because it's essentially a quick and easy method for them to use regardless of the fact that the data they obtain may be extremely poor. I know, I feel that the consultants know that this problem exists, but they are hesitant a way to move away from the method because primarily a lack of leadership in our industry. And that's where I hope that uh, we're going to be able to come together and make a move with regard to that. I personally have moved away from using sport traps on a routine basis and when I do, I make certain that the laboratory provides me a precision statement on each sample that I send in. So I think it's a, for me, it's a hinge point. Do we continue using spore traps in important uh, decision-making processes like PRV when we know that the data may be inherently unreliable? Well, I'm going back to your earlier Example, I mean, 500 spores inside or outside and 1,000 inside or outside. I don't care which way it is. I mean, 500 and 1,000, is there really that big of a difference between 500 and 1,000 when you look at the accuracy of the, the type of um, uh, analysis that's going on out there? Well, I mean, if you if you, you would need to qualify that with... Uh with a, a typical mix of common fungal spores. Okay, yep. I mean, it's a common, typical fungi. Uh, there, there, there are researchers that say, no, that there's really not, there's not a significant difference between those numbers. Now, in our industry, we tend to say, well, there's 500, 1,000, 2,000, and so we look for st statistical differences in those sets of data. 
but there are ACGIH is one source that basically looks for orders of magnitude in difference. So uh, that's that's a that's a far cry from comparing 100 to 50, so to speak. Okay, let's let Cliff get in with a follow up here. Yeah, Larry, I'm trying to determine. You know, you, 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 you talked back about. Uh, I think in the, in both in the 1980s and the 1990s, reference being made to compare indoor versus outdoor. But if the out, if clearance indoor is based on what's going on outdoors, who came up with this you know comparison idea at the beginning, and, and why didn't they see the flaws in it? Uh, it click. Cliff, I would have to say, I believe it was the ACGIH that essentially came up with the indoor out, outdoor comparison, and I've seen it published in in, in other texts and re- research documents as well. As a, it's a simple kind of quick down and dirty as to measuring what's going on inside of a building with compared to outdoors. It's kind of like an outdoor standing standard, and the. And I think that's all it was meant to be was a general out, just a general comparison. Where our industry has gone and evolved, we look at things much more detailed than they ever perceived 30 years ago. So I think, and the flaw of the method is revealed only through the evolution of our industry and where we are now. And Larry, you, you, you mentioned the total count, and, and and I know that you will want to follow up when I don't – we're going to run out of time. It's, it's just really tough. But you're talking about a normal mix of airborne fungi, okay? I know that – I'd like to have you comment on the second level that a lot of consultants go to, which is not just a comparison of the total count, but a comparison of the mix of the types of fungi find in the indoor environment versus the outdoor environment. And if you can't do it, if you want, I can go into after halftime because that may take a little longer. Uh, well, clarify for me again. You're, you're, you, you want me to describe what it is a typical mix might be? Or even your thoughts on that second level that people use oftentimes, which is they, they look at whether or not it is a typical mix and then base their clearance on that. Well, again, there there are documents, research documents, peer-reviewed publications on what's in non-damaged buildings, what's typical and normal. And uh, I, I know it, it ruffles a lot of people's feathers, but uh, stachybotrys is common in outdoor air. Aspergillus versicolor is common in non-water-damaged buildings. And often those organisms are used as key indicators to suggest that something is wrong in the indoor environment. So we, we have to be extremely careful about how we become focused on specific organisms as these key indicators. Now, what about using the organism being removed as a key indicator? Do you have any comment on that? Uh, being removed? Right. So if you you look at a mold remediation project, you go in and the predominant contamination is, I don't know, Cladosporium, Aspergillus versicolor, or just Aspergillus. What about using that 
as a an indicator of whether or not the project has been cleaned properly or not? Uh, yes. I mean, I think you can, but that's going to incorporate, I think you can look at the material and determine if it's been removed, if the growth has been removed. Uh, does a single spore of any one of these organisms that is uh, uh, residing as a residual agent on the surface of something in a containment system, does that necessarily represent a problem? I would have to say I haven't seen evidence to say it does. I see where it's being used to represent that something has not been clean, but I don't inherently see where a single spore of, let's say it was cladosporium, a, a cladosporium growth on some sheetrock, and everything was cleaned up, and somebody came back and found a single spore of cladosporium, I can't really say that, in my mind's eye, that that represents that the cleaning wasn't done appropriately because we can find single spores of cladosporium everywhere. And multiple. <laughs> That's very common outdoors for sure. Uh, let's let's do this, Larry. We're going to break for halftime. When we come back on this post-remediation verification discussion, I want to go into the AIHA Green Book and, and their some of their recommendations and primarily their use of more of a cleanliness standard as opposed to a, uh, uh, a sampling standard. They, they were in the AIHA Green Book, when it came out, they looked at actually doing settled dust more so than anything else. And I'd like to get you to comment on that. Before we do, though, let's thank our sponsors and let's go to uh, Glenn Feldman. We've got a quick halftime. Uh, what's in the news? Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfax.com 
and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, thanks to the sponsors. Let's go to one of our sponsors, actually, Glenn Fellman, IE Connections. What's news? Hello, Glenn. Do we have you on the line? I'm on the line, Joe. How are you? I'm great. How about yourself? Ah, wonderful today. Great to hear you and Cliff, and uh, wonderful to hear from Larry Robertson, uh, a friend and colleague for many years. Nice group of listeners on live today, too. That's great to see. Go ahead, Glenn. What's news? Well, I'm going to talk about the Indoor Air Quality Association annual meeting, but before I do that, I wanted to talk about uh, something uh, sort of close to home for uh, for all of us. Uh, well, maybe not for Larry, but for, for, for me and uh, you and Cliff. Our neighboring state, New Jersey, has a new bill. Uh, Assembly Bill number uh, 1588 was pre-filed for introduction in the uh, upcoming session. Uh, I don't know if you've talked about this on your previous show or not, because I didn't get a chance to listen last week. We did not. Well, good, then I'll bring you news. So there's this new bill that's come up that would require uh, regulation in the mold industry in three areas. It would require that the state of New Jersey establish uh, remediation standards and procedures that would have to be followed. Uh, it would uh, set up a licensing program so that you would have to be a licensed mold service provider. And here's the big kicker. Uh, the state of New Jersey is going to attempt potentially to do what, what few, few have, many have tried and, and few have succeeded at which would be to create mold exposure standards. And that's the part of the proposed bill that I think is raising the most eyebrows. Uh, a lot of this, of course, is coming in the, on the heels of Superstorm Sandy and the massive devastation to the Jersey Shore and the homes that are uh, now riddled with mold and either unsalvageable or uh, you know, going to require a lot of work. And also the fact that you've got a lot of Unfortunately, unscrupulous contractors, uh, fly-by-nighters, and so forth, who are um, trying to make a buck where they can in the state. Uh, whether this bill uh, is passed uh, in its present form, gets modified, or, or doesn't see the light of day is something that we'll be following really closely over the following uh, coming months. And if there is going to be a regulation in the state of New Jersey, uh, you'll hear about it first on either IAQ Radio or through IE Connections. You know, they've been flirting with this for years, and sometimes it, when you get a, a convergence of, you know, things like the Sandy Storm and uh, a lot of people that are, you know, very upset with FEMA and others, and then they, sometimes these things actually make it through. Um, and I noticed, I was looking at the bill, there were, I think there were six or seven sponsors. Most of them were Democrat, but there was one Republican on there as well. And, uh, of course, Christie's the, the governor there. I don't know what his thoughts are on it, but uh, you never know. There might be enough mad people that they get the attention of the uh, of the state regulators to go ahead and move this forward. We'll see. You know, the governor could be the wild card in all this. I, I was reading some online commentary uh, where they felt that there was probably sufficient uh, momentum within the legislature due to the outcries from uh, – the citizens of New Jersey for something like this, that it, it might get through the legislature. But whether uh, our, the Republican uh, Governor Christie would be willing to sign something like this is another question. 
So uh, I think it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. And um, you know, this thing will—if it gets to the governor's desk, that's no guarantee it's going to—it's going to make it into law. So we'll watch it real closely. Sounds good. The, the other thing I wanted to talk to you, uh, gentlemen, about today is uh, something that Larry Robertson was talking about, which uh, is the IQA annual meeting, uh, the 16th annual meeting of IQA. It will be held the 26th of February through the 1st of March in Orlando, Florida. And this year's program, it really is outstanding. I'm just going to mention a few of the things that I'm looking forward to most. One of them is a presentation by uh, Dr. William Fisk, who uh, is with Lawrence uh, Berkeley National Labs on uh, carbon monoxide, and, excuse me, carbon dioxide as an indicator of, of uh, problems with uh, uh, health and um, also uh, memory lapses and so forth. Uh, he's got some cutting-edge new research in this area that contradicts some of uh, the previously held findings and thoughts on these matters. And that will be followed up by a panel discussion, which will be really exciting. We've got the, the president-elect of ASHRAE, uh, Bill Bonfleff, the president of IAQA, Donald Weeks, and one of the board of directors members of the Air Conditioning Contractors of America. We're going to talk about this new research, talk about these new findings, and how they should immediately impact what's going on in the world of HVAC and indoor quality uh, and ventilation. So it's a, a really cutting-edge program and something that you'll, you, you'll, you won't find it anywhere else. You won't hear about it anywhere else. Uh, you'll have to come to Orlando to see that one. There's quite a few things on the program that are equally compelling and unique and interesting. It's not too late to register. You can go to www.iaqa.org slash expo. You can register online. There are hotel rooms uh, available just down the street from our headquarters hotel, which is unfortunately sold out of rooms. And... Um, Lastly, I want to mention that uh, the IAQA 16th Annual Meeting is held concurrently to the annual meetings of the Air Conditioning Contractors of America, and this year for the first time also the Residential Energy Services Network, or ResNet. Uh, the three associations have a combined ex exposition hall, uh, about 300 booths, and the addition of ResNet to the uh, big party puts... Uh, uh, close to a thousand or maybe a little more than a thousand new faces on the expo floor at the lunches and at the social events. So it's a phenomenal networking opportunity. Anyone who's doing work in, in the indoor environment who has been linking up or would like to link up with people who are doing energy uh, management or energy analysis or, or anything along those lines, green building work, this is going to be the place to make those connections to do that networking. So it's a business opportunity, it's an educational opportunity. Quite frankly, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I hope to see everyone out there. I know Larry's going to be there. I know you're going to be there, Joe. I'm going to be there. I know a lot of the listeners will be there. Uh, some of the people I see online are going to be there, and I'm look for, looking forward to it. So those are the things I wanted to talk about today. Uh, I know you've got a lot more to cover with Larry, so I'm going to let you go to that. And I uh, wish you guys a great week. I'll see you in Orlando in about 10 days. Great. Thanks for joining us again, Glenn. We'll, we'll see if we can get you in on the roundup, if you can stick around. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do that. Later I've got some, some appointments I've got to run out, no too. Problem. I just wanted to make sure I could get on this week for the halftime. And I uh, promise uh, after next week I'll, I'll come back on and, and do the full show. Sounds great.
I also want to let listeners know, if you're at the show, stop by the IAQ training and IAQ radio booth. We'll be there at the uh, at the convention this year. Looking forward to a great show. Let's get back to the second half of our interview with Larry Robertson. Larry, do we have you back on the line? Yes, I'm here. All right, great. Larry, before we broke, we were talking about indoor-outdoor comparisons, and I, I'd kind of like to move it over a little bit. The AIHA and their Green Book came out with a recommendation or at least some guidance on doing dust sampling essentially at the end of a mold remediation project. And they weren't necessarily analyzing that dust for mold spores. They were just essentially weighing and matching, you know, a clean area to a, a, a non-cleaned area or not even necessarily matching it, just giving us an idea of what a cleanliness standard is, what they called filth, and, and we were removing filth. I wonder if you have any comments on that. Uh, well, I think, I mean, I understand the concept of what they're doing is basically a, uh, it mirrors what the NADCA vacuum test is. Yes. It's a pre-weight filter, a gravimetric kind of analysis. Uh, so you, you know, theoretically, if the surface is dirty, you pick it up and, uh, it weighs a certain amount and somebody says, that, well, that amount means that it's bad. In terms of its application to a mold project, I don't see much wind in the sails there. Uh, it would take an incredible amount of mold spores just to get get this thing to change one milligram in weight. So one milligram wouldn't look like a lot uh, in terms of that measurement, but it could represent a lot of mold spores. So I don't see the functionality there really coming to play. Again, I think, basically, if you're looking to see that the, the mold growth is gone and that all surfaces are clean, you essentially do that. And that the testing really, uh, it, where, where I see the testing uh, being important is are the concentrations in the air equivalent and typical so you don't drop a containment system and essentially contaminate the rest of the building via air. And if you've removed the growth and you've cleaned all the surfaces, you've essentially accomplished that cleaning standard. Then it's a question of is the air in that containment, is it back to a normal level so you can drop the uh, containment system and the project be concluded over? So that's where I see the the testing is is of most importance relative to, quote-unquote, mold. It's the airborne mold that's in the containment system. Right. So I hope I addressed that. No, you did. I think you did a fine job on it. I, I, it, it kind of mirrors actually a comment sent in by someone who will be joining us for the roundup, John Lapoterre, who basically said post remediation verification should ensure that the contained work area will have no negative impact on the surrounding unaffected. Uh, condition one areas once the containment is removed and the contained and uncontained areas reach an indoor equilibrium. So I, I think you're pretty much saying the same thing. I think so. Uh, I, I mean, based on uh, based on my history of being able to do an inspection, make sure that the mold growth is gone. That's what we essentially. That's where all the spores are coming from. A growth site to make sure that's gone and whatever caused it has been corrected if possible. I mean, you obviously can't fix it if it was a hurricane or a flood, but you, you get my drift with that. And if you make sure that the, the growth is gone and the surfaces are clean, 
then in my mind's eye, you've essentially accomplished that remedial goal. And then what's left is you know that you disturbed a bunch of stuff when you were doing that, and it's floating around in the air. And the measurement that I think is important is relative to that air. Now, that's there's there's two things that that kind of that leads to is uh, do, what, what what do we need on uh, do we need PRV on all projects? It's kind of one of the baseline questions that that emerges. I mean, do we need to be doing this kind of testing on every mold project? And I, my response to that would be that to the degree that the job is done by a professional consultant or a professional remediator for hire. I mean, we're not talking about doing it at your house by yourself, but somebody that has a business and they deem themselves to be professional, I believe some type of PRV is recommended and should be done. And in some cases, that could be just a limited to a visual inspection. However, the problem is just doing that increases the liability, and it tends to push the PRV response to some type of sampling. And this is where I think we need to come together as an industry to determine what types of jobs require what types of PRV. For example, not too long ago, I recently solicited input on the IAQA LinkedIn website mm -hmm. for consultants to submit some clearance criteria to me. Uh, and what they would use for routine and common mold projects, and you would not believe the responses. They were across the board. They ranged from, well, you really don't have to do anything for a routine site, to, Mr. Robertson, I can't even respond to your question because we always include bacteria, mite, beta-glucan, and a host of other sampling methods on all of our mold remediation projects. Hmm. Basically saying that they don't, they don't distinguish between routine and common mold projects. In my opinion, this is exactly one of the areas where we need to come together as an industry. We need to we need PRV for routine and common projects, and those might differ from what we need for ICUs and operating theaters and other critical care units. So this is again a big area where I think where we, we need some leadership and guidance need to come together as an industry to determine what our appropriate responses are going to be for those categories. I've got a couple texts I want to get to in a minute, but let me let me just kind of go through, Larry, what the typical components that I think maybe you're saying we should include on every PRV, and, and then let's take it from there. Obviously, we want to make sure the moisture problem has been fixed. I don't know whose responsibility that is all the time. Sometimes... It's the contractor. The owner ultimately is responsible for making sure the moisture problem has been fixed. And in some cases, like in New York City, when they issue citations, they require that an architect or a registered or a professional engineer sign off on that, which is pretty pretty stringent. Um, but that's obviously the baseline. And then you've been saying repeatedly, and I, I think everyone would agree, a good thorough visual inspection to ensure that you have removed all of the visible mold. Uh, and any visible contamination. Um, I have not. We have not mentioned. Oh, obviously, getting back to a dry standard of some type, ensuring that the materials have been dried to an appropriate standard. We have not mentioned olfactory or odor, and I wondered if you could comment on that for me. 
I would I would lump the olfactory, the odor situation in with that visual inspection. Okay. And and in my mind's eye, when I do a visual inspection, it's more more of just a, a sensory inspection. I mean, I'm not just going in and looking. I'm I'm touching. I'm feeling. I'm smelling. So it's it's more of a sensory inspection. Okay, and then some type of, of sampling. We've talked a lot about sampling, but I think before we get to, to specific sampling, I want to add, a, there's a question here. Do you use a particle counter to assist no, you actually, with this? Actually, Joe, that's, it, for me, the, the, the final process in the, in the uh, clearance process is to take a sample. And yes, in the past, I have used aerosols. But as I've mentioned, I have developed some real concerns with aerosols and I am actually moving towards this concept of using particle counters in lieu of any kind of specific molds for sampling. Okay. Look, I look at it like this. We routinely use carbon dioxide as a surrogate to address appropriate ventilation in buildings. No one thinks anything about that. Carbon dioxide is really not the problem. It's the surrogate that lets us know whether or not we're getting the appropriate ventilations according to ASHRAE. I don't see any reason why we can't do something similar to that for mold using concentrations of one to five micron particle sizes as a surrogate to mold spores within a containment system and at least began to incorporate something like that for routine and common mold remediation projects. Obviously, that would, be, that would not be what I would limit my recommendations to in an ICU or a sensitive care facility. There, I might want to do culturable stuff. But in a routine and common situation, where I know the problems that are existing with the current technology with aerosol, I'm feeling, I'm feeling the directive is to go to more of a laser particle counter and utilize just the raw numbers that exist between the 1 and 5 micron range as a surrogate to determine if the concentrations are appropriate to drop the, the clearance barriers. Got it. And I think that's a great... I'm glad we got that question from John, and we're going to follow up, and I'm going to let John do a couple follow-ups on that in our roundup because he's got another one here. Before we go to the roundup, though, I want to get back to Cliff. Cliff, I know you had a couple questions, and I want to make sure you yeah, get a chance. I, I, I do, Larry. I mean, there's been so much uh, work uh, and so much need following Superstorm Sandy. I wanted to get your comments on practical and cost-effective uh, cost post-remediation verification for post-catastrophic flood remediation projects. What do you think about that? Uh, well, obviously, there's a, that's a, a lot going on. When, when a flood comes, it's, it's not like just a problem with under one sink. You've got a problem in the entire house. And I think my take on that is, it would be, become critical in those particular examples that, again, the visual inspection be done to make certain that all of the water damaged materials have been removed. 
And then this aspect of, I've been using uh, water concentration, and I've tried to avoid using uh, the word moisture meter. Moisture meters have their place. However, you really want to get down to the down and dirty to determine whether or not a material is going to support mold growth. And the potential for that after a catastrophic flooding event then you really need to be looking at water activities. And until recently, there has been a void of readily available equipment to get that. I'm happy to say now that there are companies now that are providing some rather low-cost equipment to enable the consultant to identify specific water activities of various building materials. That is what I would utilize to determine what the exact concentration of water is in that material and if it's going to result in a potential regrowth. And that's the critical issue for me in a, in a catastrophic event is how much water was received and is being held as a reservoir in those materials because you could simply clean them up and if you didn't get that residual moisture out of the materials, the mold growth would recur. So using this water activity meter in conjunction with dryers and air movers, I think is of critical importance, particularly in catastrophic events like that. Okay, I've got one follow-up question. Larry, what's your opinion on the applicability of using ATP sampling as a PRV tool for either mold or for both mold remediation and post-catastrophic flooding? Well, ATP is, is a method that's been around for a long time, uh, and, I've, and it's, it's used in clean rooms and in uh, surgical areas, and so it has a place. It has a place. Whether, whether or not I would use it as a, for, a first choice, I'm not sure I would. It is less discriminant on fungi, per se, because it can also detect, well, it can detect any microorganism that's producing adenosine triphosphate. Adenosine triphosphate is basically the energy molecule in living systems. So anything that's living is going to create ATP or produce ATP. And so it doesn't really identify fungi specifically. That would be one thing of why it may or may not be a good mold remediation tool. The other is that if you have a dead mold spore, or a dead mold colony, there may not be any ATP there, but you still have all, you know, the, all of the allergic kinds of things that are going on that the ATP method wouldn't necessarily pick up. You know, when I first saw it demonstrated, this is many years ago. This is probably the the late '80s, and one of the one of the things that happened is that you know we we did it at our training center, and we'd had an area where we water damaged, and you know we ended up getting some. Uh, you know, numeric readings there. And I just wanted to see what would happen if we uh, tested various chemicals. And I actually tested a very, very strong iodine um, disinfectant. I mean, a very, very strong product. And you should have seen the readings that came out of that. And I know it was a product that was sterile. So, you know, I think in certain situations, ATP may... Uh, there may be reactions to things that are not necessarily living. Uh, you mean like cross-reactions? Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't be able to discount that. Uh, I'm sure that there are. There are. There's also other meter, uh, meters out there that uh, that are available that measure chitinase, which is a specific enzyme associated with fungi. I don't want to use the product name because I, I, uh, that might be inappropriate. But there's a meter out there that measures chitinase, which is a specific enzyme to fungal organisms, which is a good tool. Uh, again, it's specific application to mold remediation. You know, I personally am looking. It, it may have a place. Let me finish the sentence by saying it may have a place. However, I'm looking for something in our industry that is going to simplify and gain credibility to our entire mold remediation process, the assessment and remediation events. So I'm looking for the method for common and routine projects where the consultants and remediators can come together and develop this. Certainly the ATP meters and the chitinase meters and all these other things exist but I'm not sure that that's going to be the answer for everyone. I'm looking for, I'm going to be looking for something I think is more common, uh, like these particle counters. These things have come down in price tremendously, and I'm thinking that those might be something that we could get our consultants or mediators to gravitate to. It'd be something that, number one, the remediators could actually have these as a tool in their bag so when they're approaching the PRV, they, in fact, can take a test. Right, yeah, it's live. And, and know whether or not they're ready or they need to fix their air scrubbers or change their filters or run them longer or readjust them or whatever. And then if we have criteria that basically are, that the consultants can use to use the particle counters, again, as a surrogate for a mold air clearance, and it just, I know the labs are not going to like me, like hearing me say this, but from a practical standpoint, that it just makes more sense as opposed to sending them off from the, for, to a lab. They're analyzed. They come back with a myriad of data. If you send the cassette back to another lab, you'll get another set of results that may or may not match up. It just cr creates a mess. And and does it really mean anything? If we can just get the particle levels down and they're equivalent to what's outside or in the other parts of the residence, I'm thinking that ultimately serves as the overall objective. Oh, I'm sorry, I shut my mic off there. Larry, we're running real low on time. Do you have a little extra time or do you have to run? Uh, no, i got a little extra time. I, I mean, uh, how long you get? How long you guys want to go? Another five five to seven minutes. I'd like to bring Dr. Wow in. I know he'll have some comments on this one. And then John Lapoterra, he had a couple text comments that I'd like him to just ask uh, is, as a part of this roundup. And I'll just skip my questions. And, Cliff, I think you got yours in. Yeah, I got mine in. So All right, good. let's do that. Let's go to the roundup then. Hit him up, hit him up, hit him up, hit him up, raw
let's go to the roundup here. Uh, let's first, John Lapotera, I'd like to quickly let you get a follow-up question in, and then I want to go to Dr. Wow. Sure. Can you guys hear me okay? Great. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us, John. You're one of our favorite listeners and, and past guests, and we love it when you uh, comment online here. So let's see what you've got as a follow-up. I know you got a few. Oh, yeah. I made a long list. I'm going to try and cut this up. <laughs> uh, first, I, I agree with Larry, and, and I love what he's working on. We've uh, posted and floated a lot of questions in LinkedIn regarding um, PRVs, and we get the passive versus aggressive argument, the cultured versus non-cultured. And like Larry was saying, it has to be a cost-effective approach. It has to be attainable, and it has to be repeatable, not by the most qualified of professional, but by the layman out there that's in the industry and providing uh, consulting work, writing protocols and providing PRVIs. So it has to be, it, it can't require the use of several $5,000 pieces of equipment is what I'm, I'm trying to get to. Yep. Um, but I don't know that we're going to get there easily, but I sure uh, look forward to it. I know the ASTM uh, International is putting a group together, uh, a subcommittee for uh, PRVs. Um, one of the questions that I had for Larry was what levels of airborne particles was he looking for when he used the, the laser particle counter? Oh, golly. John, I don't think I have any specifics on that. But what I'd be looking for would be something that was consistent in the one to five micron range with what was outdoors and in the other parts of the house. Okay. All right. And then, you know, John brought up a question that I see a text from a listener with respect to passive versus aggressive uh, sampling methods. And I just I just want to throw it out as a – we've had guests that were very adamant about doing more aggressive sampling. Uh, we've had some that were more adamant about passive sampling. And I'm wondering if you have any comments on that, Larry. Um, certainly the aggressive sampling is going to, uh, uh, again, serve as a, a backup of how clean the area has been. In other words, how clear, clean were the surfaces and all the nooks and crannies and such. So I have no problem with that. Uh, I would, I would stipulate that if a consultant is going to do that, that it be clearly identified uh, before the remediation begins and not something that's levied on the contractor after the project is in clearance. That way the contractor themselves know what they need to do in order to obtain what specific results. Great point. Great point. Let's bring Dr. Wow in, and if we have a minute left at the end. John, did you have another quick one, or do you want to? Uh, no, I just wanted to echo the uh, the fact that passive versus, versus aggressive, the consultants seem to like the aggressive. The contractors can't stand the idea. <laughs> um, and the other uh, issue was if you're not going to, provide aggressive sampling, when do you shut down the scrubbers? Does it have to be 48 hours shut down or 24 hours shut down? My opinion is what's airborne is going to stay airborne for at least eight hours. I don't care when you shut them down. It's not an issue with me. Larry, did you have uh, that time? Yeah, I have a couple, I have a couple of uh, comments. Uh, number one, I, the concept of aggressive sampling really didn't emerge, I think, until the, the mid-90s, maybe in the late 90s. Every mold remediation project I did prior to that never had a complaint, never had a problem. 
We all had successful mold remediation. So even without that kind of stuff, we had success. Can you get it cleaner if you do this? Yeah, you can. But is it necessary? That's a question I have. Is it necessary on the larger uh, scheme of things? The other is how are you making this agitation? If you're using the, the old leaf blower, then are you sanitizing that leaf blower between projects? Many people are not. And so essentially they could have a, a unit that themselves that is uh, bringing in debris and influencing the testing that's being done. So I would have some concerns with that. Let's get Dr. Wow yeah. on. All right, Dieter, we've got a couple minutes left, and I wanted to make sure we gave you the last word here with Larry. Well, I gladly. Boy, oh boy, we have, do we have room for another two hours? <laughs> well, Dieter, I promise on the first live audio and uh, video show we do out of the new studio here we're working on, we'll bring you up for that. That will be fine. But anyway, I think Larry said it a hundred times in the last hour and ten minutes. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to legislate common sense. It just can't be done. It's absolutely impossible. And uh, the other thing is, which most engineers don't really understand, they look at numbers, and all of a sudden they are comparing indoor, uh, inside to outside and so on. Should you, uh, uh, should you take two samples, one at the front door, one at the back door? I, damn good idea, isn't it? And maybe one on the uh, east and uh, west side of the house also. Uh, uh, so that, that is incredibly difficult. And the question is, you know, is 500 uh, much lower than 1,000 in a biological system the way we are doing it, plus the errors associated with counting, let's say, mold spores? Uh, it's, of course, it's identical. There, there is no difference between the two. And, of, and, and if you legislate that, you can't put that into writing, that common sense will help you to go through this. Then, unfortunately, there was a nitwit uh, who made Stucky Botteris uh, the number one whatever offender, which, of course, is nonsense. <laughs> Even uh, Larry mentioned that he knows of sampling and sampling areas, and it probably depends on the areas where people have found outdoors uh, Stucky Botteris uh, spores. I've never found any, and I've taken several hundred samples, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, and uh, if, if, if I were to find a, a stacky butters in my house or two or three or ten of them, I wouldn't care. I couldn't care less. It has nothing to do uh, uh, with any health effects and so on. Uh, the other thing is, and um, I'm a little bit weary. I, I, a particle counter is another toy. It's another tool in the toolbox. No, no question about it. But... <clears throat> I'm in, in, in asbestos litigation, and there are people who said, well, uh, when, when we, when we uh, 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 removed or worked with asbestos-containing materials, uh, we, we saw uh, 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 some dust in the air. Well, there's no doubt that they did it, but don't tell me that every one of these particles is an asbestos fiber. So those are the same things that we have to answer over here. And I 
the other thing is, and Larry didn't mention that, is let's say you take a sample today in a contaminated house. You go and do it again, inside and out. Now you do the remediation, you do verification, and you take samples. I don't care what kind of samples you do. Now it's a week later. Did the outside change? Of course it did. I monitor here in Pittsburgh uh, through the month. Uh, right now it's not much happening out there with mold sports uh, when there is snow and ice cold. But uh, I monitor it. And typically, typically outdoors during the summer months, we are in the range which the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, the AAAAI.org, uh, uh, they take samples here in the Pittsburgh area, and they're typically, typically between 20 and 50,000 spores per cubic meter outdoors. Now, if you say, okay, indoors to the outdoors, well, you probably, I probably would pass my house right now, even though there was no remediation done. But so those are all, like I said, these are these common sense questions where we got to watch out of how we are doing it. <clears throat> and unfortunately, not everybody has the experience that Larry has, that Joe has. I've been taking samples for over 40 years, all kinds, from coal dust to asbestos to lead to mold spores, bacteria, you name it. And I know what goes into it, and I kind of have a feel for what I am expecting. So do we have a surrogate like we have, let's say, carbon dioxide as an indicator of good, bad, or indifferent ventilation? I don't know. But uh, I think, I think to, to, it, it's, you, you can't legislate that. You can't have that in a regulation. Yeah. Make sure that everything is okay. Yeah, well, that can't be enforced. And, uh, of course, Larry said it also. The first thing you do is just like an asbestos uh, uh, abatement or lead abatement. If the place is still dusty and dirty, well, you fail. I don't even have to take a sample. I better shut up. It's quarter past. We are here now for six, 75 minutes. So um, thanks as always, though we always appreciate having you on and and getting your final comments. Now, Larry, before we go, though, we always like to give you the last word. Anything we missed or the, anything you'd like to add? Uh, I appreciate being here today. Uh, it's, this is a this is a great forum to discuss this important uh, concept, and uh, and I appreciate hearing from John. I think John might be one of my my big partners in uh, helping our industry take this step and trying to bring people together into some common sense methods. I mean, I, I, uh, a few years ago I was in a court case and I had an attorney sit down with me and he says, you know, the one thing I really hate about your industry, and he, and he went through this, you know, you can sample one day and you get this and you compare it to the indoors and then you sample again. And then it's the same example I used earlier. And he and he looked up from our lunch when we were having lunch. And he says, "You know, y'all are y'all really have a credibility problem." That was ten years ago. Hmm. We need to do something about this. We need, in an, as our industry, we need to fix this. We need to bring the consultants together. It's not going to be hard to do because every one of them's got a different idea. But we've got to do as John suggested: distill this thing down to something that. The practitioner, a simple practitioner, can use out in the field for routine 
and common projects. That's where we begin. And then we, we move up from there to determine what we need for sensitive kinds of environments. Like Joe, it. Cliff, thanks for having me. I oh, appreciate being on here. I hope to see you all in uh, Orlando. Larry, uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to Larry Robertson. Uh, I know you had a tough schedule this week. I really, really appreciate you uh, making room for us in your busy schedule. I look forward to seeing you, and maybe you and I and John can sit down for a drink or a meal in Orlando in a couple of weeks. But uh, we really appreciate you joining us. I also want to thank uh, Roxy V. Roxy V, good job on the engineering today. Sure, thanks, Joe. No glitches. Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff, thanks again. Always a pleasure. Pleasure. Um, Cliff and I, by the way, will also be together at the Dampness Mold uh, Conference in March over in Atlantic City. Looking forward to that one. We're going to try and do a show live from there. Also want to thank John Lapoterre. Thanks again for joining us, John. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Hey, next week, I just got confirmation. I'm pretty sure we're going to have Sam Rashkin from the Department of Energy on next week. Used to be with uh, EPA's Energy Star program. They've, he's moved on over to DOE. They've got a fantastic new website I've been sending out as a part of my uh, show announcements every week. you got to check it out. We're going to talk a lot of building science next week with Sam Rashkin, DOE. Um, also want to, f- of course, thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Real nice group of online people here this week, and downloads are great. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Sometimes you fall down, has been another IAQ Radio production.